everyone, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order, from the very first awards to someday in the far future, the present year. When we've watched all of the movies that were nominated for a particular season, we will tell you if the Academy chose correctly and the winner stands the Screen Test of Time. I am one of your hosts, Susan Raslin. I am your other host, David Daw. This week, we are starting at long last on the 1931-1932 year with Ernst Lubitsch's The Smiling Lieutenant, starring Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> one of two movies nominated in, in this year that has both of those qualities. Yeah, and one of two movies that are apparently exactly like an Ernst Lubitsch earlier movie <laughs> nominated. The Love Parade! Yes, this is the movie that asks the question, what was it people liked about The Love Parade again? And then gets the answer wrong consistently every single time. <laughs> that is a good a good summary. Do you want to actually tell what the plot is about that? Sure, there is a lieutenant who has good reason to smile because uh, the universe unfairly gives him things, even though he's a piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah, that is really accurate. The movie sort of starts off with the one good musical number, which is a sort of double entendre musical number about how soldiers get to sleep with a whole lot of women, which is just one of many, many things that's like, what was Ernst Lubitsch's time in World War One like? Because apparently it was very different than everyone else's. I have the feeling he spent the entirety of his service in World War One, like in a dance hall in France. And thought that was what the war was. <laughs> anyway, our lieutenant, whose name is Nikki, starts a relationship with the leader of an all-female sort of dance hall band, And then accidentally, while flirting with her, ends up offending the princess of a very, very small European country. And in order to get out of getting punished, flirts with her instead. And this princess, who of course has never had anyone hit on her in her entire life, like all princesses who wear slightly matronly dresses, (laughs) ends up falling instantly in love with him and insisting that he marry her, which he then does... But he then continues to sleep around with his girlfriend until his mistress comes along and explains to his wife how she should behave so that he will love her. At which point, they live happily ever after in a completely reasonable narrative where Nikki is our protagonist who we're supposed to empathize with. Um, Nikki being the, the piece of shit guy. That's the whole movie. That is actually the whole movie. There is nothing more complicated than that. One thing I could say for this movie is while I was watching it, I had the experience that I was seeing tropes that would show up in other movies much, much later being formed for the first time. Mm-hmm. Or at least as far as we know. I was thinking that, and I was also thinking, you know, N- Nicole Cliff of The Late Great Toast covers the crown for i think new york magazine i forget where her reviews show up the online discourse around the crown which if you don't know is a netflix series about the life of uh queen the current queen of england and sort of her early life and her early years of her marriage and one of the like big plot points everyone is driven insane by is that this fucking piece of shit that married her spends all of his time going, why don't I get to be king? Why do I have to deal with my gorgeous queen of a wife? Ma. 
And there is this constant online refrain of like, who does that? Why would anyone do that? And apparently the answer is everyone that age, because there were 500 movies with that as the plot line. All of which were directed by Ernst Lubitsch, starring Maurice (laughs) Chevalier. (laughs) I really love the idea that like, this one motherfucker and all of his musicals was responsible for like, 30 years of every single like crown prince of europe having this fucking oh god just more of this shit another guy that thinks he's gonna pull that crap on me it is fascinating to me particularly in the context of when this movie was made when you have people in the united states who are like who are literally starving and can't get work and can't feed their families and and all the children have rickets and it's like, what? what is something that's really relatable? Oh, I know. Some piece of shit guy who is bummed out that he has to marry a princess. The most bonkers thing to me is that this movie so clearly like thinks like, and there's stuff in here for the ladies. This is such a relatable plot line for women. <laughs> and they're gonna love it. It's like that scene in Mad Men when like Peggy first starts working in ads and the guy comes in and is like, listen, we all know all women either want to be a Marilyn or a Jackie. The two genders. And like, <laughs> just like, like, except that there's just this whole fucking weird ass plot line. Ugh. Can we just skip all the way to the, like, whole, like, mistress-wife sequence? Because it it blows my fucking mind and is also kind of the one interesting thing that happens in this movie. Yeah, we can. There's definitely some stuff at the beginning I want to go back to, but that is... The last 20 minutes of this movie are the only thing that makes it worth watching while being incredibly offensive. Which is a hard line to walk. Admittedly. Yeah. <laughs> Claudette Colbert, who plays the girlfriend, Franzi, runs into the princess. They spend a good five minutes gushing about how Nikki is the dreamiest, which, uh, no. Uh, citation needed, certainly. <laughs> the, also, they fucking slap each other. Mm. Also, they, like... So there's this th- there's this specific moment where the princess slaps her first and you're like good and then she slaps the princess back and the princess like immediately falls on the bed and starts weeping and then like Francie's like well I guess me too and just falls over for no reason and starts weeping as well and you're like I uh, I came to hate Francie by the end of this movie just because you're fucking propping this guy up. You're enabling him. Stop enabling Nikki. Well, she does eventually leave him. Sort of. I mean, yeah, but only after... She does. She leaves She leaves a letter saying, you know, I ran into your wife, who you would be interested to know is blonde, because there's a whole thing at the beginning. Right. She asks... Nikki, you know, what does the princess look like? What color is her hair? And he says, I have no idea. But she leaves a letter that says, you know, you'd be interested to know that she is blonde and actually very charming. And uh, P.S. I'm out. You're right. She does actually, like, formally, like, definitely leave him. It's that I wanted the end of the movie to be that she came back and, like, was hiding behind a curtain and stabbed him to death. (laughs) And so I didn't really want to believe 
so I, d- I didn't process that letter as like truth. I processed it as like, this is setting me up for the twist. But there was no twist. She does just leave him. But yeah, before that happens, they, they slap each other and then they fall down on the bed crying. Yes. Uh, and then the princess apologizes and says, I'm sorry, did I hurt you? And Francie says, no, no, I'm, a- I'm not hurt. And Francie then apologizes and asks her the same thing. You know, were you hurt? And the princess says, yes! <laughs> Because the princess is, I mean, I have no great love for nobility writ large, (laughs) but they make this woman into a child. Yeah. I'd forgotten about the scene where Nikki gaslights his own wife about whether or not people have sex. (laughs) Literally tries to convince his wife that nobody fucks. Once they're married. I blocked that part out. And, like, because there are these weird scenes, she's also, it's, like, this weird contradiction because, like, her one character trait is that she's boring and reads a lot and wants to do these intellectual things and yet, like, doesn't know what basic words are or how anything in the universe works in, like, that way that, like, book smart in old movies meant that you'd literally never left the room you were born in (laughs) somehow you were born in a library and you never left yeah once they get up from their crying jag and get done talking about how gorgeous nikki is and how they both totally should be fighting over him they do a little duet that is the most insane thing that has ever happened in a movie because it is called Jazz Up Your Lingerie. And it's like if the makeover sequence in She's All That happened 10 minutes before the end of the fucking movie and the girl doing the makeover was Freddie Prince Jr.'s girlfriend and was like, go get her, girl. And like... It is bonkers. This is the part for me where I went, oh, this is where this came from. Because it's just the end of Greece. I mean, yes. Absolutely. It is 100% the end of Greece. It is the woman who wants to be with one dude being like, okay, here's how you keep him. Is you've got to drop the Madonna act and you've got to be like slutty and sing a song. <sighs> and that is how it works. Except... 1931 slutty is bias cut white silk dress and a big fur and instead of singing on a fairground she's like banging on the piano with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth when nikki comes back that by the way is my favorite thing because like i fucking love you know what's gonna get my husband into the sack is some fucking crowd work with my cigarette (laughs) and it works It's not just that she, like, plays jazz piano. I feel like the movie was like, oh, I kind of realized that, like, just on its own jazz piano and kind of, like, chamber music piano are not as different as you kind of want them to be. So, like, really fucking mug it up. And again, that's totally in Greece. You know, she comes out, Sandy comes out, she's smoking a cigarette, she throws it on the ground and does the, you know grind it out with the toe of her high heel Mm -hmm. thing. It is the same thing, except instead of wearing skin-tight black spandex, she is wearing a white bias-cut dress. Yeah. I mean, I guess the reason it's bonkers to me in a way that, like, Grease... There's a weird thing in this movie where it, like, stops being a musical for, like, 40-minute stretches. There's, like, four musical numbers in this musical. And two of them are 
barely musical numbers. The one that you referenced earlier where they kind of do that mm-hmm. setup for the hair color joke is these series of like little patter rhymes that they kind of play a melody under, but it's mostly just a dialogue scene. There's really the opening musical number, there's jazz up your lingerie, and then there's like a couple light motifs that go through the movie. And then they kind of do this one musical number in the middle to be like, oh yeah, this is a musical. And so like, instead of feeling like of a piece the way that the end of Grease does, where you're like, oh, this is weird, but uh, like also everything in this damn movie is weird. This was the tone from moment one of Grease. Like this is the logical culmination of Grease. How else could this movie end? There's this thing where you're like, Oh, right. This is a musical. Wait, this is what they're singing about? What? What is happening? I do have to give this movie credit in one respect, which is there was no time during this musical where I thought, okay, Nikki is definitely going to eventually get with the princess and be happy about it. Yeah. And he walks in and she's, you know, she's got the cigarette dangling out of her mouth. And he's like, yeah. All right, now I'm totally going to bang my wife. He leans out the door in his pajamas and gives us the big wink, and then the movie ends. And it's like, ten minutes ago, you were so distraught that Franzi left you, but now that your princess wife is hot, you don't care. Yeah. I really didn't think it was going to go there, but it went there. I kind of was waiting for, like, one more twist at the end of this movie, but also feeling like there's definitely not going to be one. That's how this movie ends. Like, God damn it. Because I definitely, like... God, what was it? There's the, it's specifically that she whistles him back to bed at the very, 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 that's like the last thing that happens. Right. I mean, I guess this is arguably more feminist than the love parade because she does have the power in the relationship at the end of the film. Yeah. But also. I mean, yes, but she also has to overly sexualize herself in order to have any agency. Oh, yes. And also, she married a man who, like, literally just pretended to... Oh, God. It's also just... We had the whole extensive thing while I was watching this of just, like... Nikki not only is not interested in the fucking princess who is into him, he is fucking exaggeratedly such a fucking shit whenever she opens her mouth for the entire film. Cannot stand to be in the same room as this literal royalty trying to make him royalty. And like is like, I, mm, I guess we're doing this now, huh? <laughs> to her going like literally offering him the fucking crown of whatever. Of Flossentherm. Fl- yeah. Totally real. Definitely not made up Flossentherm. <sighs> Flausentherm? Flausentherm. I think it's (laughs) Flausentherm. And, like, I get that there's a lot of, like, jokes about, like, what a small and insignificant country it is. But it's like, oh, you only get to be king of Rhode Island? Poor you. You fuck. (laughs) (laughs) To go back to what you're saying about it being arguably more feminist than the Love Parade... One of the things that was actually pretty heartbreaking for me is that the princess... Oh, Anna. Anna wants to have sex. 
She wants to have that kind of relationship with him. It's not that she's frigid and Franzi will put out. It's that he doesn't want to bang her because she's not... Not because she's not Franzi, but because she's not his definition of hot. Yeah. And, like, also... Which... (laughs) It's also, like, clear that just, like, he has not looked twice at her. That it is... Uh, it's so... He's such a piece of shit. And, like... Miriam Hopkins is adorable. Yeah. Claudette Colbert is really pretty, too, but they cast two incredibly beautiful women, one of whom is put in a dowdy dress instead of playing violin on tables in dance halls. There's this bit, and I... I guess they did this on purpose, but maybe that's giving Lubitsch too much credit. Is part of the thing in Jazz Up Your Lingerie is after she gets the makeover, kind of for the whole film, they keep shooting Anna, like Miriam Hopkins, from these kind of unflattering angles. Like they, they shoot her in direct profile, like all the time, so that you kind of think her, I don't know, maybe this is just me being incredibly shallow, but I thought they were trying to make it look like she had kind of a weird nose. Oh, fun fact. (laughs) Apparently, the director had a lot of trouble making this movie because Miriam Hopkins and Claudette Colbert insisted on being shot from the same angle. (laughs) And of course, like, you, you can't do that, particularly when they have scenes together. Yeah. But yeah, it does feel like when I read that, I thought, well, it's, that seems odd because they keep shooting Miriam Hopkins from these really unflattering angles, whereas Claudette Colbert always looks like the quintessence of flapper girl goddess. Yeah. But then, like, when after the makeover happens, they are standing right next to each other and are being shot from the exact same angle. And you're like, oh, my God, they look exactly alike. They just have different hair colors. Like, it's it's like fucking uncanny. And not, like, exactly, exactly alike, but, like, one is taller than the other one is the biggest thing. Like, they have very similar facial, like, bone structure in their face. They could be sisters. If they got cast as sisters in a movie, you would not be like, that's weird. Those two people could never be related. They do look remarkably alike, except for Miriam Hopkins has a different nose. That's, that's, like, pretty much it. Yeah. Claudette Colbert's turns up, and Miriam Hopkins does it. And, like, when they get shot from the same angle that kind of minimizes their nose, they look really, really, really similar. And it is, again, I should not have given Lubitsch enough credit to think that that was on purpose. <laughs> was to an extent i think that the audience has to believe that anna has become enough like franzi that nikki is willing to sleep with her and is thrilled about it and is finally like well i guess i can be prince as long as i can bang a hot chick yeah god i'm sorry i'm reading the wikipedia page for the smiling lieutenant and i'm reading the lubich touch thing at the very bottom okay The notion of the Lubitsch touch is used to describe the visual comment or joke that becomes a trademark or signature of Lubitsch's films. Billy Wilder defines the touch in relation to the smiling lieutenant. It was the elegant use of the super joke. You had a joke and you felt satisfied and then there was one more big joke on top of it. The joke you didn't expect. That was the Lubitsch touch. The ultimate super joke is that at the end of the film, the wrong girl gets the man. Uh Okay. I I guess I'm just like, that's not, but she did. I think the super joke is that 
Franzi is too talented and fun to run around with this shithead. Yeah. And so now she's at last free. And this, okay, so this is the thing I wanted to talk about going back to the beginning. Yes. So when we, we first see Franzi, Nikki is in the dance hall or the bar or whatever where she's performing. He's talking to his friend and she is performing and keeps trying to continue to perform. And he keeps making these jokes about how women are always interrupting. Except, like, no one's here to listen to you chat shit with your buddy. They're here to see this incredibly talented woman lead an all-female orchestra in 1931. You're not on stage here, jackass. That sequence did have the one even vaguely entertaining or charming thing I thought Nikki did through the entire movie, which was... He goes and meets Franzi because his friend is incredibly enamored with her. And then he sees her and immediately starts trying to, like, warn his friend off of her so that he can date her. And, like, my favorite sequence of that is when he, the the friend is married, and Nikki tries to convince his friend that Franzi looks exactly like the friend's wife. And the friend is like, what are you? And he goes, no, just look at her. Ten years younger. Twenty pounds lighter. Her nose has been worked on. The same woman. <laughs> and it is... And, like, it is only funny to me because it is the only part of the movie that seems to, like, really kind of recognize Nikki as the shit that he is. Oh, yeah! And actually kind of, like, play that up in a way that's really entertaining because once he... Once he starts dating Franzi and Anna, the movie kind of has to keep having them continually insist, like, no, 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 he's worth it. Definitely he's worth all of this. But until he is dating either of them, the movie just revels in what a fuck he is, and it's kind of great. And I was really disappointed, actually, because I felt like it was setting him up as this heel... And so we were going to see him get his comeuppance. Yeah. You know, like what would have been ideal would be he comes home, Anna is in this gorgeous evening gown, and she is also, you know, one of the boys with the cigarette hanging out of her mouth playing jazz piano. And he's like, oh, no, now I totally want you. And she's like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. (laughs) That would have been great. Like, Francie left him. Anna is like, you are banished to back to Austria, which he apparently loves more than anything in the world. And that's the end of it. The men in this film generally are played for laughs. And because we have to believe that these two women who are great <laughs> would be fighting over Nikki, it takes this total about face. Yeah. And he's no longer a jerk. He's like charmingly rakish. But they don't set him up as charmingly rakish. They set him up as like the asshole who is really good at wordplay, but is really mean. It's one of those things where everyone mysteriously loves this dude for shit that apparently happens off screen. Because all he ever does is fuck shit up on screen. And then people are so sad that he's going to be punished for doing things wrong. To address some of the things that I enjoyed about this movie. And it's weird because I really hate Nikki. I hate him so much. And I do think that it is inconsistent with how he's presented that there should be two one is a princess the other is incredibly talented and successful they're both beautiful that they should be fighting over this guy but one it was a short movie and it was definitely very heavy on the clever wordplay and good jokes yes is it king adolf who is 
Emma's dad? Yes. Okay. Adolf the 15th is her dad, yeah. Is he the one who, he says to Nikki, you know, did you mean to wink at her? And Nikki says, you know, oh, no, I didn't. I was winking at somebody else. And then he says, well, then you have to marry her because, you know, you humiliated her. And he says, okay, fine. No, I, I did mean to wink at her. And he says, well, then you definitely have to marry her because you were flirting with her. Uh, yeah, no, the the actual the actual dialogue, which was great, is that he goes, were your intentions honorable when you winked at my daughter? And he (laughs) goes, "Uh, yes, of course they were. Well, then you must marry her. And then Nikki takes a moment and goes, well, my intentions were not honorable. Well, then now certainly you must marry her. (laughs) And there was a lot of that kind of banter that was really witty and and great (laughs) if you could just divorce it from the rest of the plot. Yeah, and like... This movie moves. I would say this movie is paced the closest to a modern film of any movie we have watched so far. Like, there are not long extraneous sequences of why is this in the fucking movie. There aren't really lingering shots on weird things. There's maybe two sequences in the movie where I'm like, why is this in the movie? But both of them are at least modestly entertaining. The whole sequence where the two weird old people come and survey the the bedroom on the night of the wedding is like well at least this is pretty funny like it's it's one joke at the very end for really just showing off the set right but like at least the joke at the very end is kind of amusing you know you said that it it doesn't feel like a musical because there's only about four musical numbers (laughs) i think the way that it does feel like a musical despite that is that it is definitely structured like a musical (laughs) it's one clever specific scene after another the way that you would have one musical number after another and you don't have have these long drawn out you know why are we why are we still in this scene moments beautifully edited yeah which is really the first of any of the movies i think we've seen that i could say that about yeah so good job meryl g white whoever you were i hope you didn't do the love parade because you really screwed uh. the pooch on that one he did not okay good it is a deeply sexist movie that is funny in individual scenes But I I really felt like I was constantly enraged and then laughing at what was happening on screen. Oh, yeah. The dialogue is great in this movie. The plot is garbage and the main character is dog shit. (laughs) But, like, the, the actual dialogue is very good. Like, there are, like, solid patter jokes in this movie. And there are not a whole lot of those in... Even the love parade, which I would say is like the other clever... There certainly aren't any in, say, the Broadway melody. Love Parade had moments of humor, but they were mostly situational. They weren't... It wasn't clever pattern. I think that, like, we've seen a lot more physical comedy, which makes sense as we're, like, just getting out of silent film. Most of the comedy thus far in movies has been, like, extremely broad physical comedy. And this is the first, like really putting most of the humor in the dialogue movie that I think we've seen. And it does good work on that score. Like, there is a lot of good commentary on, like, stuffy aristocracy that is kind of too full of itself. The whole sequence where they explain that Nikki cannot possibly propose, and he goes like, oh, that's great, I had no intention to propose in the first place. And they're like, great, I'm glad you agree. And he's like, wait, what's happening? Right, and now you're engaged. Like, what? What? Yes. (laughs) What? 
And then there's the random woman who calls him on the telephone who is, like, who is the Mae West archetype. Yeah. She's, like, laid out on a chaise lounge. I know that this is only the second movie we've seen by him, but I did think, like, this is the most Ernst Lubitsch thing I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> fucking life. When she, when he picked up the phone and just, like, like Sunset Boulevard laying out on the chaise longue, fucking... <laughs> What are you doing in Austria? How did you have dinner with the emperor? What is happening? Um, who who are you other than like sultry woman in an evening gown on a piece of furniture? Yeah, who was just calling to I guess congratulate him, but mostly mock him for not knowing he was engaged. Um. <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, it was the most Ernst Lubitsch thing I've ever seen of two movies I've seen by him. Yes. So one of the the great qualities about this movie being short and moving along at a clip is I don't feel like we need to dive into that much stuff. It's like we, we got there. The only other thing I would say is like that opening number is apparently not that great because I can't remember the name of it. But the opening number was like actually pretty cute and clever. The double entendres were funny. And it was like an actual song, and I was kind of excited that, like, oh, at least the music will be good, and then the music just disappears for the majority of the film. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, yeah, I think we've, we've covered pretty much everything there is to cover. Would you recommend that people watch this movie? Here's the weird thing, is that, like, there's a level on which... I guess I would recommend this over the love parade. Oh, absolutely. And I think we kind of borderline recommended the the love parade. And yet I would not recommend seeing this movie. It enraged me. <laughs> it was at least not an unpleasant experience. There are definitely like movies that we watch where I'm like, well, I guess I'm doing dishes while we're watching this movie. And like, I just get up and do something else while the fucking movie keeps going. And this was not one of those, but it was an experience of like, really? We're doing this? This is what we're doing now? God damn it. Every five to ten minutes for basically this entire movie. Yeah, I do feel like my blood pressure was through the roof. Yeah. The whole time I watched it. Yes. Conversely, though, what score are we giving this film? Well, just for me, as far as recommendations go, I would say if you if you hate women and you like witty banter, <laughs> this is the movie for you. And you know what? It's been a rough year for you. <laughs> so good. So 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 finally, go back in time to 1931 when you can really get what you want. Or if you were just. If you are a total scholar of cinematic tropes and you want to know, like, this is the origin of this thing, it's this movie. So I guess watch it then. If you just, if you love Grease and you're like, I would Mm -hmm. love to see the movie where the last 10 minutes of Grease came from, this is your movie. Alternatively, you could just tell people that at parties, like how you tell everybody that you read Capital in the 21st century and you really didn't because it's like 900 pages long. And really, you just know that it means that inequality is going to grow and grow and grow. Do the Grease version of that and tell people, you know, there are a lot of parallels between Grease and this 1931 film called The Smiling Lieutenant, including the like, basically the entire last act. And then don't watch this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I th- do that. Listen to this podcast and don't watch that movie. 
So yeah, as far as score between, we're still doing one to ten, right? That's yeah, I think so. Unless we want to change that for twenty eighteen, just to confuse people. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I we'll, we'll do one to ten. Oh, uh, uh. so I want to give, I want to give this movie for technical work. The script is good as far as dialogue is concerned. The editing is great. Mm-hmm. It's a really tight film. I don't like Maurice Chevalier, and he is pulling the same shit in this that he did in The Love Parade. He's also in it less, though, so that's nice. But his acting style rubs me the wrong way. So I'm going to deduct points for that. And I'm going to deduct points for it just being wildly offensive and misogynistic. So, like, a five? Yeah, I'm I'm in this similar, like, problem boat. Sure. I'm in the similar problem boat where I... <laughs> where we're just bailing ourselves <laughs> yeah. out. With, there's just problems <laughs> filling up the boat. Where, like, on the one hand, this is a better film than a lot of the films we have watched thus far. But on the other hand, like, the whole premise of this podcast is that we're not grading on a curve in that way. Right. And, like, I feel like if I went and watched this movie at the fucking theaters at the Grove next weekend, I'd be like, what was this sexist fucking piece of shit? Like, <laughs> 2017 of all years, you're going to try and pull this crap. I recognize that this movie does a lot of things well. But the movie that it is angers me so much that I can't, like, I I cannot, like, credit it for being well edited because f- fuck this movie. So, like, if I was doing, if I was doing, like, the Siskel and Ebert review, this would probably be, like, a seven or something. Like, a six or a seven. And instead, it's like, ugh, I guess you can have a four. I guess. Fuck this movie. Wow, okay. So you're gonna give it a four. Yeah. I'm gonna give it a five, just because that's where I felt like I landed. With, like, all sorts of caveats. Sure. Because it's not an average film. It's extreme in quality on either end. Like, as a technical piece, it's extremely good. But as far as the story is concerned, Mm -hmm. and the message that it has, it's trash. (laughs) Yeah. So it ends up as a five because that's how, it, you know, you mix 10 and one. <laughs> sure. Well, then you end up with a 5.5, but whatever. Yeah. So next week. So next week, we're, uh, we're, we, bad news, the poster for next week is fucking rad as hell. <laughs> and the movie is called Bad Girl. Yeah. There's some solid reasons to hope this movie will break our long string of very good posters meaning very good meaning very bad movies but also we do have that streak going it is as of yet the best barometer of quality we've come up with for these movies it could be terrible but i guess we will find out next week yeah and until then this this was a movie this this was a movie this I'm just going to I'm going to do that improv exercise where I have to read the same <laughs> sentence 30 times. That's how our catchphrase is going to work from now on. This was a movie. <laughs> <laughs>